you're here in the room today or whether you're watching online, a congratulations to each of you. One of the things I love about this church family is the way that you invest and you pray for the next generation. And so those of you who have just graduated, congratulations. Keep choosing Jesus in every step along the way. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. My name is Pastor Dave, and uh, we're jumping into a summer sermon series that Pastor Joe introduced last week. If you have your sermon notes with you from the bulletin, go ahead and grab those, take them out now. If you didn't grab a bulletin, you can head back and get one of those before we get started. But what you'll see at the top of these sermon notes is the statement that we want to be making that goes against what our culture says. Our culture screams to you, follow your heart. And what we want to do this summer is change that from from a statement about what we want to do to the statement that's written here, Jesus, may I follow your heart. A totally different feel to that statement. And Joe talked last week about how the the intellect and, and the emotions and the actions, all of those things are part of the heart that can be taken to Jesus to follow what he wants from us. And so today, we want to talk about the first in a series of habits that will help you as you take your heart to the Father. And the big question for today, the title of today's message is, What is Prayer? That's a lofty title to take on in in a one-day message. You could do a year sermon series on prayer. But the reason that this is so important, the reason that we're starting with this habit, is that we want to be increasingly a church family that is committed to prayer, both publicly, like what Keith just did for these graduates, and privately at home in the quiet places. This morning, as we ask this question, what is prayer? I want to share a story with you to illustrate how humbling it is to try to be the one standing here to explain prayer. You see, a few years ago, I had a friend come to me who was in a deep depression, a loss of dignity because of loss of income, no job for several years. And this friend explained to me two sides of the the pain that he was feeling. His relationship with his wife was strained, and his relationship with his middle school-aged daughter was stressed. And so he came to me and he explained how here he is at this spot trying to figure out what to do. And I looked at this friend of mine and I said, wow, I don't have much advice for you, but when I'm in these situations, typically I go to God and I talk to him in prayer. Now this friend who was coming to talk to me was not a believer, not somebody who was used to praying all the time. And so I felt really sort of sensitive about suggesting this, but I said, What if we talked to God and asked God what we should do? And this friend said, okay, that would be great. Why don't you pray? And so I did what many of you in the room and those watching online, what what many of you would do, three steps to successful prayer. You know what I'm talking about. First, you take your hands and you clasp them together like so. Then I closed my eyes. And then third step, bowed my head. And now I was ready to talk to God. And so I began. God, here we are. We don't know what to do. We need your help. 
And in that moment, I heard a voice as clear as I've ever heard. And I wish that it was God's voice, but in that moment, it was my friend's voice. (laughs) And it hit me like a rude interruption because I am sitting there thinking, I've done these steps and I'm praying. And so I kind of looked up out of my, and I look at him and I'm thinking, what are you doing? And what I heard was this stunted, halting, awkward conversation for the first time with his maker. He joined in. He didn't know that you're only supposed to pray one at a time. (laughs) And I heard him talk to his creator and say, God, I agree with what Dave is saying. We don't know what to do. The frustration that I initially felt gave way quickly to this absolute humble gratitude that I got to witness this moment with this guy connecting with his father. See, what it reveals about me, this was just a couple years ago. I've grown up in the church. I've served as a missionary. I've been a pastor. I went to Christian schools. I have become obsessed with the function, with, with the forms of prayer rather than the function. I'm obsessed with the form rather than the function. Does that make sense? I I wanted to fold my hands and I wanted to do everything correctly. And when someone just began talking to God, that hit me that this is strange. And that's humbling for me because I'm on this journey with you to try to figure out what is prayer. And so today we want to look at a story from the Bible, to anchor our time together in this story of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Our big goal today is to stretch our understanding of prayer, to deepen our commitment to prayer, and to help each of us know what it means to communicate with the Father, the function of prayer, rather than the forms of prayer. I want to talk about the function. We're going to look at these four specific stories from 1 Samuel chapter 1. And so I invite you to take your Bible. We're going to read a good bit of scripture today, and I'm not going to have it all up on the screen. So get your device, get your Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, there's one located very near you in a seat back. Thank you to Gary and the facilities team for always doing a great job keeping those Bibles stocked in here. If you don't have a Bible of your own, actually, it's a good time to mention, you are welcome to take that as our gift to you. Take it home and use it well. We have more that will, it will be replaced. And I invite you to open up the scripture to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to look at this story together to help us understand four lessons about prayer. And so I invite you to look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. It says this, There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. I practiced that about ten times to get through that. (laughs) He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. 
Now, to those of us in the modern West sitting in our seats this morning, we read those confusing names and geographic locations, and we think, what is the reason that all of that is there? It's no mistake, it's no accident, and it's not something that should be just skipped over to get to the good part of the story. Because this is the introduction to the story that sets up the drama and the intrigue that is to come. This is the part of the story that the ancient reader in the Near East would have said, whoa, that's tough. And here's why. We're introduced to this man whose name is Elkanah, and then it goes back all of his generations, and it says the last word in that verse is that he was a descendant of an Ephraimite. To us, that means almost nothing other than maybe if you're familiar with the tribes of Israel, that would make sense. But do you know where this name came from and the weight that it carried? If you look at Genesis uh, chapter 41, verse 52, this is Joseph when he has his second son, and it says that the second son, he gave the name Ephraim. And he said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph suffered greatly, but God blessed him in the midst of the land of suffering. And he named this son Ephraim. And the word Ephraim literally sounds like the Hebrew word for twice blessed or twofold increase. It is a fruitful name. And so, when you are introduced to Elkanah, the Ephraimite, in verse 1, and then you hear in verse 2 that he has two wives, one of whom has been fruitful and has lived up to the expectations in the family name, the tribe, and the other who has been a miserable failure in the eyes of the tribe. Two verses that introduce drama and intrigue way better than most TV shows that you can watch for an hour. Think of what life was like for Hannah, the weight that she carried. Let's read together verses 3 through 8 with particular focus on one of these verses here that we'll show you. We'll get up to verse 9 in just a second. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. She had many. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, Peninnah, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, with tremendous sensitivity, by the way, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Not a good question to ask, gentlemen. Let me just warn you on that one. Notice in verses 3 through 8, the time frame and the trigger. 
The time frame that is mentioned is year after year after year. Elkanah would go up to make a sacrifice. And then year after year after year, Peninnah would provoke Hannah to the place where she was not able to eat and she would weep. This went on over and over and over. The time frame, continual. The trigger, the celebratory worship at the temple. It just kept happening over and over. And so every time Hannah would go to what was supposed to be the special place, it felt terrible to her because of the pain she felt in her heart. There were multiple voices speaking into this drama. One is Peninnah with a provoking voice. One is Elkanah trying to provide, but not scratching the deep soul itch that Hannah had. He's giving her extra meat. He's saying, oh, well, I love you. Isn't that enough? It's not, it was not enough for Hannah. And then we get to this amazing verse, this first part of verse 9. And it's on the screen here because I would like to add emphasis to it. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Hannah stood up. To you and me, standing up after a meal does not seem that significant. It's a normal practice. Get up, push the chair in, and we go on with what we're doing. But this means something very different than simply standing up. This is an idiom that means something like we would say, putting your foot down. Hannah stood up. She put her foot down. She made a decision. And this is the first lesson of the four lessons that we want to look at today. Prayer is hard. I don't want to discourage you because really it, it's simple communication with God, but it begins with a decision that actually is very difficult. If it was easy, we wouldn't be up here talking about how do we do this? But we're here because it's hard. This is not easy to make a decision, to put your foot down and stand up and say no more. See, the voices that had been speaking into Hannah's heart had not helped her deal with the pain that she was feeling. And so she decided this will not happen any longer. Hannah stood up. And I love the way that this hero of the faith said, no more. It's, it's the same idea as saying somebody has been rude and cruel and not had good boundaries and been insensitive, and you're saying, no more, not doing it. It's when you look at your own life and you notice there's a pattern of addiction and you say, no more. By God's help, no more. To stand up, to put your foot down, and to make a decision is not easy. The first step is often the hardest. Why? Because you have all these voices competing with the one voice that is speaking to you that can really answer the questions that your heart has. It's difficult when you have multiple voices speaking to you. A, a few weeks ago, I was with my middle son, Titus, at his soccer game. We had arrived about a half hour early, and we were sitting there in our little camping chairs, ready to cheer for him, my wife, my two other kids, the four of us were all settled. He was out warming up with the team. The game time was 1230. 
1229, I scanned the field and I saw both teams, coaches, all the parents, but I didn't see any of the zebra stripes out there. There were no referees for the game that was supposed to begin in one minute. And so, being an avid soccer fan and a gracious soccer dad who wanted to make the game go on, I walked with great confidence straight over to the coaches and I said, hey, do you guys need a referee? And they looked and they said, well, have you done that before? I said, no, but how hard could it be? (laughs) And so they looked at me and they said, okay, why don't you take the middle? We'll help you if the ball goes out on this side. I said, okay, that'd be good. Good, good idea, guys. So I walked out to the middle, and then I realized that they're on one side, but I had a whole other sideline to deal with too. So with great confidence, I walked over, and I looked at all the parents that were gathered on that sideline, and I said, hello, friends, countrymen. I will be your referee today. There was a slight, you know, chorus of laughter. I said, I need your help because I'm not going to be able to see everything really well. If the ball goes out, just give me a little help on that. Everybody said, okay, we will. We got you. I went to the middle, and I said, let's play, because I didn't even have a whistle. Okay, here we go. So the ball works its way around a little bit, and in the course of time, boom, it goes out on the parents' sideline. I couldn't really see what had happened, and so I turned my gaze to my helpers. And do you know what I saw? There was one set of people wearing blue. They were all pointing one direction. The other set of people wearing yellow were all pointing the other direction. And I looked and I thought, oh boy, this is bad. Because there's two voices pointing two different directions and it now is up to me to put my foot down, stand up and make a decision. And so I said, it is a blue ball. And they took it and threw it in. But every decision that day was awful because I was disappointing a whole half of the audience who was there. I never want to be a referee again. Please, if you are a sports parent, take it easy on those referees because it's hard. You can't see everything that is going on. And there's two voices that are competing. Hannah made a decision that she was not going to allow the two voices that were speaking into her life to have the loudest volume anymore. She stood up, put her foot down, and said, no more. And that's step one. What is prayer? Uh, It's hard, because it requires a decision from you to do something different. The only way to grow in the discipline of prayer is to make a hard decision that you will create space and time and quiet for yourself. And our culture is screaming to you that space, time, and quiet are something you will not have enough of because we are a people who are busy, we're loud, and we're moving fast. Prayer is hard because you have to say no to the voices that are pointing you different directions and say yes to one voice. Let's continue in our story to get to the next lesson. Let's look at the next scripture. We're going to look at verses 9 through 16 with focus on a couple specific verses. Let's look at the second part after she stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, 
Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great great anguish and grief. When we have the privilege of approaching Almighty God in prayer, the privilege that we have is that we don't have to be obsessed with the form of prayer. You see how Eli was watching her the same way I was looking at my friend? He said, what are you doing? And this is a religious leader. And she says, it's from my deep anguish that I'm weeping bitterly. It's my great grief. See, lesson number two, prayer is honest. Prayer is honest. We have the privilege of coming before God with no need to facade. There's nothing that we need to hold back and hide. The problem for you and for me is that in our culture, we have become accustomed to curating our images and cropping them and filtering them and feathering them to make them look presentable And that is a disease that has in some ways crept into our souls also. It's not just out there on social media that we do it. We do it right here in this room, in in the hallways of this facility, in our relationships with one another. We facade and we filter and we present something that doesn't necessarily match what's going on on the inside. Prayer is an opportunity to be honest. You see, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. A couple chapters later in this same book, in chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, what's cropped and curated and filtered and feathered, but God looks at the heart. He knows you. There's no reason to hide anything from him. He is one that you can be honest with. There's an amazing scripture in Psalm 62. It says, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Most of the time, I'm convinced in the way that I pray is that I still have that little filter on top of the pitcher of my prayers and I turn it and decide what strainer I want to use, what filter, and I pour out, but the ice stays back. And the idea is that we take the top of the pitcher off and we turn it over and we pour it out because God is our refuge. He is the one who is ready to hear what's going on in our hearts. He knows it anyway. No filter prayer. It's honest 
If you want to observe what honest, no-filter prayer looks like, I have a challenge for you. Over these next 30 days, read five psalms a day. And you will, over the course of 30 days, complete the whole book of psalms, and you will have encountered raw, honest emotion in ways that sometimes are shocking. I've never heard a prayer prayed publicly that says, may the children of my enemies be fatherless orphans. That's the kind of, I'm like, whoa, but that's a prayer. The, the rage that the writers of Psalm, it's not just David, lots of writers, the rage that is expressed is shocking. The deep disappointment, the abandonment, the fear. On the other side of the spectrum, the, the elation, the excitement, the overwhelmed gratitude. See, our culture says, follow your heart, trust your emotions, and we're saying, uh-uh, that's not the way to do it. Sometimes in the church, we say, stuff the emotions, don't pay attention to those, uh-uh, that's not the way to do it. Scripture says, take those to the Father and pour them out before him, because he's a good father. And when we do that, we're being honest. Just pour. Be done with the hiding. There's no reason for you to hide from the one who knows everything about you. There's no other person on the face of the planet who knows you like your father. Your own family doesn't know you because you have the amazing capacity to put walls up and to seal off your heart from people really knowing you. Your father knows you. Take your heart to him. Be honest before him. Let's continue in our story with Hannah, verses 17 and 18. We'll look specifically at these for just a moment. Eli answered her, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. The movement and the food and the appearance were all impacted. Lesson number three, prayer is healing. There's something about prayer that helps us to be healed from the things that are plaguing us. As we unload the burdens or frustrations, temptations, anger, confusion, God refills us with his peace, his clarity, his wisdom, his discernment, vision, direction, confidence, healing for the sick heart. Jesus himself claimed that the healthy do not need a doctor. It is for the sick that I've come. It's amazing. See, prayer for Hannah impacted her appetite and her appearance. She felt a healthy desire for food. Her face was no longer under this dark cloud and downcast. Something had changed. And some of you may be sitting here saying, well, she made a deal with God, and God answered it, and so obviously she feels better. You get your answer to prayer? Yes, you're going to feel better. But I want to point out to you something that Tim Keller, in a brilliant sermon on this same passage, he talked about the, the, the progression that happened. See, we think in our minds, sure, prayer, then pregnancy, and then peace in her heart. But it actually wasn't that order. Because what Scripture records is that she prayed, and that was what gave her the peace. 
She had not received what she had asked for yet. And so it wasn't just a deal-making with God, it was a pouring out before God that gave her the peace that she longed for. The order of it was prayer, peace, and later on in the story, we get to the pregnancy. That's amazing to me, because it wasn't the result that she asked for that gave her the peace, it was the connection with her father that gave her the peace that she longed for. I have an interesting slide to show you next. This is a picture of my earthly father from about 25 years ago. His name is Bob. He's a great guy. I got to be careful here because he'll be watching this later online. Uh, But I called him this week and I said, Dad, I'd like to tell the story about 25 years ago and the healing journey that our family went through could I have the picture? Mom and dad both knew the picture that I was talking about, and it's the one that's on the screen. I want you to take a look at this picture of my dad, and I want you to try to determine what needs healing. It's like a game show a little bit. You look at his face. We were laughing when I talked with him on the phone because he said, so tell me again, you're going to put up a picture of my face and have people critique what's wrong with my face. I said, correct, I'm going to do that, and I'll compile a list of all the people's ideas and send it to him next week for Father's Day. What a gift I can give to my dad. So please be creative in what you observe about my dad's face. This picture has become sort of iconic for our family because at the time it was taken for his work, we had no idea. We didn't know. My dad was visiting with a doctor friend of his who took a look at him and said, Bob, you actually, you have a tumor growing in your neck. And later, when we went back to see this picture, we could see the shadow of the tumor bulging out of my dad's neck. And this friend looked at him and said, listen, you need to get to see a surgeon. And so not long after that, my dad was under the knife and they removed a tumor that was impacting his thyroid. And because of a friend pointing it out and a surgeon's intervention, dad is still enjoying a healthy journey at this point, 25 years later. I'm so grateful that a friend pointed it out and that a surgeon was able to help. But I show you this picture because he didn't even know he needed it. We were blissfully unaware. The reality is in a room like this with an online audience, there's some of us who are sitting with an unknown issue physically that we will find out about in the months ahead. That's crazy. But, but even more heavy to me is that there are many in this room who have issues of the heart that also no one else knows about. Maybe you have some sense of it, but you may not even understand how deep the sin has taken hold. And I'm convinced that prayer is healing because when you pray, you have both friend 
who points it out, and surgeon who can take it out. There's this amazing song I love by a guy named Cody Carnes who talks about running to the Father again and again and again. He says, my heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. And boy, that is the truth of it. God offers you both prognosis and procedure when you go to him in prayer. It is healing. And Hannah's story is one that reveals that. She went to the Father and she received the healing for her heart that she needed. An amazing story. Let's continue reading now in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Early the next morning they arose, worshipped before the Lord, went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah. The Lord remembered her. In the course of time, Hannah became pregnant, gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. The Lord remembered her, and he blessed her. In the course of time, we don't know how long the time was, but in the course of time, he granted her this desire to have a child. And she gave him a special name. We talked at the beginning of our message today about a name, Ephraim, that had special meaning. I think names and their meanings have huge importance. This name in Hebrew literally sounds like the word for God heard because this lesson about prayer is that prayer is heard. This is the crux of everything we're talking about today, because many of us don't pray because we don't really believe that prayer is heard. It feels like a a helium balloon that floats up and gets stuck on the ceiling. It feels like maybe a one-way street in downtown Butler where, yeah, we're saying stuff, but I don't know. I don't know if it's heard. It goes one direction, but who knows? And I want to stand here this morning with every confidence to share with you the truth of Scripture is that prayer is heard. God hears your prayers. He is not too busy. He listens and he cares. In this specific chapter, what's amazing to me is that we don't see God speaking back directly to Hannah. We see that he remembered her We see that he honored her request. But what I do know is that just a couple of chapters later, there's this amazing story in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And in in verse 1 of chapter 3, we read that this boy Samuel is now serving with Eli in the temple. And there's this little phrase in in verse 1 of chapter 3 that is astounding to me. It says that in those days the word of the Lord was rare, there were not many visions. See, sometimes in my prayers, I think to myself, wow, it would have been so cool to live back in, in Bible times when everybody was just talking to God and hearing back directly from God. That would be, it'd just be so much easier. So it'd be amazing. Well, the truth of it is that In these days, the word of the Lord was rare. And this boy, who was the very answer to mom's prayers, is serving in the temple. The word of the Lord is rare. And one night, he hears his name called out. And so he goes running to Eli, who's laying down already for the night, and he says, did you call me? Eli says, no, go back to bed. Samuel is called again. Samuel. 
and he goes running again. Three times this happened, and finally, after the third time, Eli realizes, Samuel, it's not me calling you. There might be someone else calling you. And so if, if, uh, if it happens again, I want you to place yourself in a posture of receptivity and say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And boy, didn't God come and speak to Samuel because he placed himself in that position. Prayer is a two-way communication. It is heard, but it is not only heard by God. Prayer is heard by you as well because you are talking to God. It's communication. And some of you may say, I've never heard God speak audibly, and I say, that's okay. God continues to speak through his word, through his revealed nature in creation, through other people. God speaks to you, and he may whisper peace to your heart, just like Hannah when she was in a difficult situation. But God is speaking, my friends, and I long for each of you to be able to say, I've heard, I've heard and I know that he's speaking to me. The four lessons for today, prayer is hard, it's honest, it's healing, and it's heard. At the end of the day, our goal is that we would be able to say, God, may I follow your heart. May I follow your heart. And really, I would like to be, I would like to serve as Eli did for Samuel, and I want to encourage you in these coming moments to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I've asked Brad and Amy Shockey to come and close our time together with a song. And what I'd like for you to do during these moments is to place yourself in a posture of receptivity. Eli told Samuel, go back, lay down, and if God speaks, say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We've talked today a little bit about this song by Cody Carnes called Run to the Father. And at the beginning, we said Hannah, year after year after year, was facing this difficulty. She stood up and made a decision. And my challenge for you is that as we hear this song, you would be convinced that you can run to the Father again and again and again because your soul needs a friend. And your heart needs a surgeon. And he's the one who can do that through prayer. So during these moments, I invite you, listen. You can sing along. Put yourself in a posture of receptivity to process. God, what do you want to say to me today? Spirit, we invite you to speak to our hearts.